0: It's the first Monday of the month, and we are taking your questions on the monthly Q&A show. This is Coaching for Leaders, Episode 261.
1: Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential.
0: Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stehoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show gives you access to the practical wisdom and expertise that we all seek in becoming better leaders. And I am back this beginning of this month here with Bonnie and tackling our monthly Q&A show. And Bonnie, how did I do on the emphasizing the made versus the born at the beginning? Cuz you were telling me I should <coughs> I should emphasize made better. Did I do a good
1: job? I was going to look up someone's name on Twitter. Oh, well,
0: there you go. Nice to know you're uh, zeroed in on our focused, uh, totally focused, focused on our recording session here. Well,
1: actually, I'm looking up a name for the for the session, so you know, so it's relevant. Yeah.
0: Okay. Good. Well, you know, speaking of things that are relevant, I totally feel like I let down the parents of small children in our audience recently, because Scott Barlow made a reference to a Paw Patrol puzzle. Mm. I totally missed the Paw Patrol reference. And And you
1: let down our children and all of future generations of children as well.
0: It's a good thing our kids don't listen to the show, because if they did and they had heard that Paw Patrol and me say nothing about it, just feel like they would have probably uh, gone on strike or something. So speaking of which, we've got lots of questions for us to tackle this month. And uh, thank you to all of you. Who have sent in questions and continue to send in questions for us to consider. If you have a question you'd like us to consider for a future episode, please do send it in to us at coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. And the first question this month comes in from Rachel.
1: Often I'm sought out by my leadership and my peers as the go-to coach for the team. However, I'm still so very new to coaching and have a ton to learn. I often find I'm asked questions I don't have the answers to or my ideas and thoughts are not well received by others because they're too touchy-feely or soft. I believe in motivating and empowering our frontline staff so that they want to do better. But my boss is definitely the opposite. My boss wants us to coach on fear of write-ups and or the dreaded talk in the boss's office. How can I better balance the expectations those around me have for coaching on hard performance aspects like metrics and performance ratings while growing my own personal brand of coaching, soft skills, motivational, empowering in a more organic way?
0: Well, Rachel, thank you so much for sending this question. And my first suggestion, Rachel, for you and for anyone else who is is navigating this is to, uh, well, first of all, even before the suggestion is to know that it is very common for almost all of us in a leadership capacity to uh, be on either one side or other of a grid of task versus relationship. Task is concern for things getting done in the organization. Relationships is concern for people and the relationships in the organization and developing people. Most of us tend to uh, have a preference for one side. And my guess from your question, Rachel, is you probably have more of a focus on the concern for people. It sounds like your boss has more of a focus on concern for tasks. So my first suggestion would be to pull up a browser and Google the names Blake and Moten. That's Blake, uh, B L A K E, and Moten, M O U T O N. Blake and Moten Managerial Grid. And if you if you google that, you will get a whole bunch of images of this very famous and classic managerial grid and it is a grid between task, uh, concern for task and concern for people. And as you look at this grid, one of the things that'll be very apparent to you and I think everyone else too as you as you consider it is that it doesn't necessarily have to be an either or. So even though most of us do have a preference for one side or the other and how we show up in the organization, really some of the most effective management and leadership is done in the space between these two. So it is not ignoring the tasks and the goals that the organization needs to get done, but it's also not just focusing on on the relationships with others too. It's, It's being able to do both at the same time. So One of the things that I'd suggest, Rachel, is getting clear on what are the tasks and the numbers and the performance metrics that are important to your manager and are important to the organization. And one of the things I always like to think about when I'm thinking about how do I navigate influence in the organization is how is the person I'm reporting to measured on their performance, what is it that the owner or the executive team or the board of directors or whatever that, that next that next level of uh, management is looking at, how are they being measured and what are the numbers that they likely are being asked for and that they're concerned about? And those are the things, if they don't make explicit, that I I am trying to figure out so that I can then manage to those with my team. And so in the context of the relationships and the regular interactions you're talking about, sounds like you're already doing a lot of the concern for people and the development and the coaching skills, which is great because we talk about that a lot on the show, is also then adding in the piece, again, not instead of, but in addition to how does this skill being developed help you to hit this performance goal this week, this month, today on what we're measuring And when you zero in on those two to three specific areas, I think that that will help bring those things into the conversation and it will also help support the the reason for the coaching and development that is going to link those together. So that way you're working on both at the same time and you're coaching yourself on utilizing your concern for people in order to drive results in the organization as much as you're coaching the other people in the organization along with it.
1: I had a little bit of a different take on your message, (laughs) I should say, before I sat down in this chair in in our podcasting studio. I did confess to Dave, I'm a little, a little, uh, we could tell our kids they were fussy, so I'm a little fussy today, so we'll have to preface it by that. But when I read your email, I loved, by the way, seeing you talk about how much you have to learn, and I hope that you never stop learning and stop that hunger for growing, that is going to serve you so well in your career, Rachel. Your boss to me doesn't sound like someone who's more on the task orientation. Your boss sounds like someone who's never picked up a leadership book in his life, if I can take your, what you're saying here as fact. And in fact, we can't. I mean, we know that when we're only hearing one person's side of a story, we always know it's colored. It's colored by our biases. Anytime I tell Dave a story about something that happened to me at work, it's always colored. But sometimes our curiosity for what makes effective leaders, we can actually watch someone like that and go, how's that working for him? (laughs) It's not really paying off very well. A culture of fear is notoriously throughout all of the research in leadership and management, not one that's going to produce the best results from the people that are within the organization. So I think you're in a position where you are definitely going to be learning what not to do. And probably want to be looking for what you're already doing. You're listening to this podcast, you're talking about how much you have still to learn. Make sure you constantly have avenues to other places where you can find out more and have modeled for you what great leadership and what great management looks like. And sometimes we do have to go outside our organizations. Another thing that I would bring up is that sexism is still very rampant in our organizations. And sometimes if someone implies to you or directly tells you that you are being too touchy-feely or too soft... That is a symbol. Of, I'm not saying every time that that happens, but oftentimes it can be a symbol of sexism coming up in the workplace. And we could talk about this for many, many episodes and still never unravel the mystery. It's not like cause and effect around pay inequities that exist. But pay inequities are just one sign of a broader picture that sometimes women are treated as if what we bring to the workplace is not as valuable as what a man may bring. And of course, people are much more complex than just gender dichotomies like male, female. There are a lot of things that Dave does that are more traditionally feminine. There's a lot of things that I do that are more traditionally masculine. So I'm not trying to oversimplify here. But as I (laughs) read your email, I I started to have visions of, you know, it's been decades, but younger in my career where I did have women take me aside and say, you know what just happened in that particular thing when someone told you you did this too much or whatever that hasn't, don't stop doing that. That's part of who you are. Mm. That's a wonderful part of who you are as a person, as a professional, as a woman. And don't let a man tell you to start behaving more like he behaves just to be the good little girl there, or I guess, good little boy in this particular instance. So I did have it smacking a little bit of that. And if that's some of your frustration, by the way, a wonderful author who has meant a lot to me in this area is Deborah Tannen. And Deborah Tannen is a linguist, but of course, linguists study language. They also study culture. And there's just some wonderful wisdom that she's given me throughout all the books that I've read of hers over many, many years. Best wishes to you. Our next question here is going to be from Mike.
0: Could I say one other thing on, uh, on Rachel's not. question? Nope. absolutely <laughs> <laughs> stop the tape. You you did say you were (laughs) fussy. (laughs) Um, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I didn't mean to leave the impression that I thought that her boss was doing a good job for the organization by any means. I didn't think you did. yeah. Yeah. It reminded me of something I put on Twitter this week. Joe Knight, who was on the show earlier this year, has the book Financial Intelligence and talks about organizations. He sent out a tweet this week, which I thought was funny. He says, company values are important, but not as important as cash. It's really hard to get your employees to work for values if you run out of cash. <laughs> and so <laughs> I Rachel, all this to say is even though you're not working for someone that I think we would consider to be an effective leader and not the way we talk about leadership on this show for sure, it's a great development opportunity for you to think about how you bring in the concern for task and hitting numbers with also the great coaching you're doing. And if you find a way to start to do that more, that'll serve you so well throughout the rest of your career. All right. So let's go for our question from Mike. Let me see if I can find it here. All right. So Mike says, I joined a new company over a year ago and inherited a team from a previous manager who is now my boss. There were vocal people with bad attitudes to really significantly affect the rest of the team. Since that time, I've worked with my boss to let a few people go who who are not performing, and we've backfilled their positions with a few new individuals who have more experience, a better attitude, and who I see as real contributors to the team. The individuals from the previous incarnation of the team seem to be doing better individually. They're happier, more productive, and are becoming more effective with the work that they are tasked with. Despite all of these changes, I still have difficulty getting the team to communicate, engage, and work together as a team. I'm really hoping you can help me troubleshoot this. Whether this is a team culture problem that I inherited or something that I may not be helping to address correctly, I'd very much like to hear any ideas or solutions uh, you have used in the past to improve a very challenging and unengaged team culture. Bonnie, I'll let you begin
1: with uh, this one. First of all, Mike, what a challenging experience you're in. I have been there before. And organizational culture is, is so fascinating because it's... In some ways, it changes so fast. I mean, if one person leaves a team, you can just see that team transformed or somebody gets added that's a really strong leader, can completely transform it. But boy, there's these at the same time that that is true, there also just can be these lingering issues where you think, oh my gosh, could we get over it already <laughs> It's been it's been such a long time. so cultures can change quickly and slowly, all in the same time frame, if that makes any sense at all. A couple of things that have worked really well for me is to celebrate small wins. But when we celebrate those small wins, we don't do it like everyone gets a trophy. So it isn't, oh, Dave, you did this so well, Bonnie, you did this so well, so and so you did that so well, because that's really inauthentic. That really says that it it, it becomes overly apparent that what you're trying to do is to fix stuff and not really be willing to get down to the, the rawness that is often existing sometimes in organizational cultures. So I mean authentically celebrate these small wins, but notice them. And what you can start to do is to teach the others in the community how to celebrate those small wins and how to articulate that important communication of something that really worked well you also can teach them together how to articulate when something didn't go well. And so celebrate the small wins and then sort of unpack the things that didn't go well and get people comfortable that we can talk about these things and what we can do differently and start to get the input where everyone sees the different lenses that they put on toward challenges that are happening and how we can start to to fix The little stuff that becomes big stuff, if that makes any sense at all. I would focus on measuring something important. We looked in the last question about this task versus relationship. Sometimes the cultures get so caught up in the drama of the relationship end of things, and we forget about stuff's got to get done. And one of the things that can be really helpful is a really simple dashboard There are many electronic tools that can help you create dashboards, but even if it's just really something simple, I'm working in a somewhat new capacity sort of (laughs) at my institution and sat down with the individual that I am a team member with now and just talked about how could we just quantify a little bit more what it is we're doing, how our time is being spent. And how that time investment is somehow aligning with or not our overall goals. And so being able to articulate out what our goals are, I would say for you, since it's early in the team, I wouldn't sit down for a day long, you know, retreat or something. I'm talking small stuff here. Because to me, so much of the small things that we do actually add up to be some of the biggest transformations that can happen in an organization. So I I would suggest that you don't go too dramatically on this. If you do a dashboard, maybe it's got three things, three gauges that you're looking at. No more than five, absolutely. And have it be stuff that's really easy to measure toward whatever your goals might be. And then the last piece of advice I would have for you is to be authentic and transparent and talk about, not in emotional terms, but in behavioral terms, what it is that you see happening. I noticed that this happens talk about the behavior talk about the results or something like that can you tell me what your thoughts are about that does it concern you do what when when this person left and now this happened what i noticed that we didn't really communicate very well on that this happened and then we didn't really talk about it or the emails didn't get the loops didn't get closed what do you think about that and get them used to talking with each other It's tough, though. (laughs) There are certainly no easy answers, and I absolutely wish you the best as you take on this vital leadership role in leading this group.
0: I like that you mentioned that because I think that it is something that often a manager can uniquely do, and I think is an easier thing to do is to say something like, "Hey, I noticed this didn't go well. Let's get people together and just talk through what happened." and Uh, It's interesting how often that can start to generate a conversation. And you also will, of course, uncover things that you didn't know were there that will become landmines. But I think you'd rather know that. And especially if you're working, as you've mentioned, in a team where it sounds like, and you didn't use this word, but it sounds like maybe there's not some trust there, some communication not happening. Um, I think when you sense that people are not talking to each other or they're just coming to talk to you about other people, the more you can start to encourage everyone to come together in that conversation. I've seen a couple of leaders do this masterfully recently where you know, one party would go talk to the manager and another party would then come talk to the manager and they'd say, hey, you know, in the spirit of less us all communicating better, let's get everyone together and talk about this issue. And I think that if you, can, if you can utilize your position as a starting point to start to engage in that way, I think you, one, start to address the issues, but also just as importantly, you start to set a tone in the organization where, hey, we're going to solve things. We're going to talk about things and we're going to get things out into the open a little bit more, and we're going to uh, we're not just going to let things go by or or let the kind of the back channel conversations happen. we're going to really address it proactively. The other thing I'd add here too, on a somewhat related note because this just came up in a conversation in one of our mastermind groups this week, is we were talking about. More on individuals. If there's individual bad behavior on a team, and we have a mastermind member who's in the process of navigating this in their organization, and one of the things one of our other members mentioned is that um, you know when you're in a situation and it's just someone's just doesn't have the right attitude, or maybe they're fulfilling their job requirements, but they're just not approaching situations with the right attitude. Is is he really likes to call people on that? Not in public, but one on one. And have that be a regular conversation about attitude or what's not working or or the kind of tone they're bringing to the organization. And his experience was that that really helps in a lot of cases to change that behavior because people, you know, if they are not communicating well within the organization or they're they've got a negative tone, calling attention to it and bringing that into the light tends to mitigate a lot of that. And so he tends to do that when those situations come up. So maybe another another thing to. Uh, to attempt if that's something that's more individual-based versus the team culture. So I uh, hope that's helpful to you, Mike, and gives you a few suggestions on things you might be able to uh, to try next.
1: This next question is from Pierre. Several of your past shows are on the topic of storytelling and the power of story, and I get it. But there is another face to it, which is that people tend to tell stories about some events that with time, start to largely replace the facts. I'm amazed of the cognitive bias that can exist and develop in this way. I realized in three distinct occasions that some one-year-old, quote, facts on a project I'm working on were pretty much distorted to the point that they no longer relate to what actually happened, with consequences of some mistrust existing within the team. Stories we repeat tend to replace our memories, it seems.
0: This is starting to sound a lot like some fishing trips I've been on in the past, Bonnie, <laughs> where uh, the fish was 20 inches long and over the course of weeks, it became 30, 35 inches. So Pierre, so human nature on this. And the thing I think also that is probably important to mention here is we all do it. In fact, Bonnie, you mentioned just or just a few minutes ago, you saying something like when you tell a story, you're bringing your perspective to it and probably bring your biases to it. And we all do that. Uh, when I think of something that happened in the organ in an organization six months ago or a year ago in a project that I was on, I tend to remember it in a way that's favorable to me <laughs> more so than I would for other people. And ask any police officers ever investigated a traffic accident and there's five witnesses to it, there's always five different stories based on the lenses people are seeing of their own experience, their own biases. And so absolutely, this is going to happen within organizations too. So absolutely, it's it's it happens. It's true. The thing I guess I would zero in on here, Pierre, is first and foremost, is there's the normal types of things we all do as human beings that cause us to have our biases. And then there's also times when I think that consciously or not people really do very intentionally change the facts in order to you know change their political influence in the organization or to rewrite history and i think about the quote in that those situations of you know fool me once shame on you fool me twice shame on me when you get the sense that that has happened with an individual in the organization or that they're likely to change the facts or change the story over time i think that that is a place where if you can put in metrics and be very, very clear on how things are going to be tracked and keep good records that will help you to have the story told in the way that's as close to the facts as as possible. So I think the key thing here is zeroing in on the data. And my experience has been both in organizations I've worked in and also seeing clients navigate this is the stories tend to vary and get embellished more quickly and more pervasively when it's not clear the metrics and the reporting and the data that has been agreed to in the organization. So I think when you get clear on the numbers and what numbers are being tracked and why, I think that prevents some of that from happening. And particularly if you have the if you have the history with a particular individual or a particular team, where you have the sense that the story is going to change over time. You may not be able to go back and change that in prior situations, but going forward of how do you establish very clear metrics, what we're measuring, so the story is much more close to the truth. And the other thing I'd say too is there's always going to be a story that's going to be told. So if you're not influencing the story, if you're not utilizing the data to support the story that you're telling in the organization influencing, someone else is going to create a story. And that story may or may not be reflective of the facts that actually happened or be reflective of the the kind of influence that you'd like to have in the organization or that you think the organization should go as far as a direction. So I think that… As a leader, we all bear responsibility for being clear on what the facts are, the data are, how we're reporting and tracking, but then also telling the story, being out there and and telling that story ongoing in the organization so that the story that's being told and that emerges as the quote unquote truth is the story that is as close to the facts and as close to what's going to serve the organization as possible.
1: The Twitter handle I was looking up as we were beginning the episode was the tattooed professor I couldn't remember Kevin's last oh, name Oh Kevin Gannon cuz he's so <laughs> he's so prolific on Twitter and it's always the tattooed professor so Gannon was the last name I was forgetting as I looked up his name but one of the debates that comes up pretty frequently in higher ed has to do with assessment And there would be one side of this pendulum that would say we need to measure everything, it should be precise, we should quantify everything that would be an outcome for a class which leads to a program which leads to an entire degree and, and what have you. And then the other side would be learning is messy, we learn we can't really measure it. We, we shouldn't measure it. It's, it's unethical actually to measure it and everything, everything in between. And what he was talking about is that if you're on the side that says we shouldn't do this at all, or like in your case, we shouldn't tell the stories at all. If you say we shouldn't assess this, or back to your example, we shouldn't tell the story, as Dave just said, somebody else is going to tell the story for you. And you're going to have a lot more control over it if you are the one who's attempting to articulate the meaning and significance behind these events. Absolutely wish you the best as you do this. And I know we have another question from, or not another, we have a question from Rasmus.
0: Yes, and this was a follow up, actually, from a previous question on a previous Q and A. Bonnie, you may remember Rasmus's name. He, he was working on a degree and doing a lot of commuting and trying to get ass- assignments done late at night. And we answered his question, and then he emailed me back and he said, "Oh, thanks so much for the answer to the question." And he didn't say it quite this bluntly, but he he said, "You didn't you didn't answer the question that I asked," <laughs> which was he 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 the question he was asking was, "What's the motivation for you?" behind, how do you keep up the motivation for work-life balance? And we talked to him, like, we talked through the strategy and the tactics of how we do work-life balance. But what he was interested in, he wrote back and said, uh, what I'm also wondering about is motivation, especially since the only time I've got for schoolwork is when my daughter's asleep during the night, how to manage to keep up the motivation and to do good work. How do you guys keep yourselves motivated when you're really stressed out and not having good work-life balance? So he was kind of curious, what, like, what drives us around that?
1: I think a lot of times for me, I tend to be more of a behavioralist on this kind of thing. A behavioralist psychologist would say that we can behave our ways into feelings. And if I'm not feeling particularly motivated today, I can still do the steps that a motivated person would take. And believing one of two things will happen. One is this is just a season. And that helps me keep perspective sometimes. And two is sometimes when I start to take those steps... I'll find that motivation will follow as a parent of two small children, but who now are this close and you can't see my fingers, but they're very close together right now. They're this close to being out of diapers and completely in a new part of their lives where they're a lot more independent. Our daughter's big girl bed is coming here in two days and she will be able to get up out of bed in the middle of the night and go use her own toilet without us Ever knowing it, I'm sure it's not going to go quite as smoothly as I just described it. <laughs> but In all, our
0: minds, it will work that beautifully.
1: All this to say, I remember very vividly how hard it is to have a point in time in my life where the only time we can get work done is when the kids are sleeping. And sometimes just a five or 10 minute walk is another way that I get some motivation, just a little bit more energy to, to get going. So maybe even before your little one goes to bed take the five to 10 minute walk. Kids actually sleep better too if you get them outside a little bit before they go to bed. Most kids do. And that might give you a little bit, again, it's not motivation. It's just a little bit more energy. And to me, motivation can really vary day by day. But the big picture is I'm moving and progressing toward the goal. And in your case, getting done with that school will be such an amazing motivation. And even if you don't feel motivated every day, if you're taking steps that a motivated person would you're going to be right on your way toward the great rewards that will come when you accomplish that.
0: Dale Carnegie has a classic phrase that says, if you act enthusiastic, you'll be enthusiastic. And I think about motivation in the same way too. So for me, Rasmus, the motivation, one is there's a certain sense of responsibility I feel for motivation, both personally and professionally. I've had a lot of privileges in my life, especially around my education. And so I feel a lot of responsibility to do well for others because of that and to give back in that way. So that is absolutely a motivating factor for me, both professionally and personally. The other thing that motivates me is leading by example. And I say that both from a standpoint of our Coaching for Leaders community, the client projects I handle on a daily basis, and our children, is if they always see me stressed out or working crazy hours or doing all those the things that a lot of us tend to do if we're not thinking about how can we keep the good good work-life balance in in check. Uh, Of course we all have days that we don't do this well, but for me, leading by example is a key motivator. So when I'm not doing it well, I think to, okay, who's watching me do this? Is it our kids? Is it Bonnie? Is it our clients? Who are seeing an email, you know, for me late at night? So that's a motivator for me to actually have that figured out. And then I also resonate with what Bonnie said of having not only a long-term vision of you know why are you doing this? For example, going to school, that's a that's a a goal that really supports a long-term vision of what you want to do with that. But also, I I like having the short-term. Like, what do I need to do to get the paper done? <laughs> for which was often the case of like, okay, I've got this paper I've got to do for this graduate program this week. How am I going to get that done? And I focus on like, I, I just need to get this paper done this week. And I'll figure out next month or next year or later of just having those really short, specific goals because ultimately a big motivator for me is quality of life. I don't want to, be working only in the night and those things. And like Bonnie was saying, there's a seasonality of this with especially with young children. But as a motivating factor, I really want to have a life where I can enjoy the time, where I feel engaged with the people I'm connected with, and I'm doing a really good job of leading by example. As always, the best and easiest way to get access to everything we've mentioned on this and every episode is the weekly leadership guide. You will get that in your inbox on Wednesday, along with my recommendations of things that I think you should be reading that will help you in your ongoing leadership development between the shows. I'm always finding things that I think are inspiring. Uh, helpful, practical, uh, both audio, video, and things to read. So if that is of interest to you, go to coachingforleaders.com slash subscribe and you'll get that in your inbox every Wednesday along with the detailed show notes and resources. And when you subscribe for the first time, you'll get access to my reader's guide that lists the 10 leadership books that will help you to get better results from others. Also comes with a video from me and a PDF of all of those books, why I think they'll be helpful to you and where I think you should start your leadership development through that reading. And again, coachingforleaders.com slash subscribe is where to go for that. And there's a number of past episodes that have come to top of mind for me from today's conversation with Bonnie. Three of them in particular that I think are worth Going back to from a few of these questions is, first of all, episode 148, the topic of that show was the four stories leaders need for influence. David Hutchins was on that show talking about storytelling and what are the practical things that that leaders need in order to utilize storytelling in order to not only develop people, but also to advance the strategies of the organization. And if you're not a natural storyteller, like most of us aren't, by the way, That is a very practical way to get started on knowing what are the key stories that if you can get your head around on how to tell and the framework for it, David does a masterful job in that episode. Again, that's 148. And also episode 207, the title of that one was How to Transform Your Limitations into Advantages. Mark Barden was on the show talking about their book, A Beautiful Constraint. He talks about in that episode and their research has found that, in fact, If we have limitations in our work and we don't have all the resources available to us, in a lot of cases, that actually works to our advantage. And interestingly, Adam Grant cited some of the same things in his research when he was on the show earlier this year. Turns out that when you have all the resources and all the funding and all the budget available to you... A lot of times that doesn't work out great. Sometimes we do our best work under limitations. And that conversation was all about that, episode 207. And then finally, I'd recommend episode 249, How to Succeed with Leadership and Management. John Cotter was on the show earlier this year. He is probably the leading expert in the world on organizational change. And he and I had a conversation about the distinctions between leadership and management. Comes right back to that conversation that Rachel, or that question rather, that Rachel asked earlier about the balance between performance and people. It's a very closely related topic. And if you're in a leadership capacity in any way and thinking about the balance between those two things, I definitely encourage you to check out episode 249. The way to find all the past episodes is, of course, check out the show notes on the leadership guide, but also just go to coachingforleaders.com slash the episode number for past episodes. And that will always get you there to all those library episodes. And speaking of episodes, next week, I am thrilled to be able to welcome Chris Voss to the show. Chris is the former lead international kidnapping negotiator for the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI here in the States. He is joining me to talk about the lessons from his book, Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as if Your Life Depended on It. And it is a fabulous book on negotiation. It's totally changed some of my thinking. It's going to be my go-to recommendation on negotiation uh, reads uh, going forward. And I think you'll find the conversation really powerful because it turns out, unlike we've all thought, the high stakes negotiations that the FBI does very directly relate to the practical negotiations we all do every day. So stay tuned for that. Have a great week. Take care.